Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, what is lactate threshold in terms of how do we identify it physiologically, what does it mean physiologically, and in terms of applying that knowledge for performance and preparation, does it make sense? To say that we do or don't need to know the physiology to apply the concept, how do we identify lactate threshold and interpret it in training, we'll look more at Arthur Lydiard's thoughts and ideas and attempts to communicate about the concept of training around this kind of an intensity, not because he is the only person to ever identify this intensity as being a way to regulate and make the process of training much more effective than the alternatives, but because he was such an important communicator on this subject. And ironically, his attempts to communicate about that is led to his marginalization. And we'll talk about how to test specifically for the lactate threshold. If you are enjoying the podcast, please, we'd love it if you would share with other people who you know would enjoy these kinds of conversations or who don't know they would enjoy them, but if they encountered them, they would. You can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. Send us a message. Let us know if you're enjoying the podcast, if you have questions about any of the things we're talking about and how you can apply them to your own training. We're available for consultation. Let's get into today's episode. In order to talk about lactate threshold properly, we will identify points of confusion in the milieu of sports conversations that are always ongoing in all kinds of spaces and all kinds of scales that make it difficult to reach the understanding of lactate threshold. It's not that lactate threshold is a difficult concept. It's that the obfuscation, debate, argument, and in some sense, pridefulness that people have wanting to believe that the idea they came up with is the best idea creates a lot of static and white noise and makes it difficult for us to understand. It becomes more about, for some people, I think, unfortunately, being credited for coming up with the idea, even if the idea they came up with isn't really that effective. And the best way to eliminate any sort of doubt about whether their original idea is effective is to eliminate all forms of competition in the sense here of alternative practices that could potentially prove to be better. If lactate threshold is really so effective, if it really optimizes and drastically increases the value of the time we spend exercising, working out, training, due to the fact that it leads to these incredible transformative adaptations that as endurance athletes in the sports of running, cycling, speed skating, swimming, whatever else relies on that system of endurance development, why is it that it isn't just the norm? I think that there are competing factors. I think we've talked in the previous episode on this subject of lactate threshold about the concept of pain and why our culture around pain, our belief and what that communicates, our belief in what engaging with that leads to, I think that's one issue. I think another issue is that when you engage in things that you don't want to do, having an external person encourage, compel, engage you to push further into that, 
becomes really effective. And that's the coach. And I think that's where we see the complexity of what is the responsibility or the role of the coach. First of all, that could be whatever a coach chooses to offer. And then if athletes in that free market sense, you know, rah-rah capitalism, but in that free market sense, if athletes choose that, right, or they cannot choose that. But that's the idea of choice. It doesn't necessarily mean that that process of choice leads to the best outcome because those choices are rooted themselves in core beliefs and expectations. Another aspect of the coaching piece of it is ownership. If you're a coach, where do you get that sense of ownership? How do you function as a stakeholder in the experience of the people that you're assisting in their process? You know, when you go to championships, you see in different sports that there's very different interpretations of what the coach's role or acknowledgement should be. That hockey movie Miracle, uh, when the team wins, there's the scene where the coach sort of goes off by himself, has a moment where he's excited, and then comes back out and, you know, continues to be sort of neutral and sort of aloof to the experience that the athletes are having. And I think that's one sort of norm. And that's a really harsh expectation for people to put significant amounts of energy into something, to be expected to be a difference maker in the sense that they are expected to, at least the goal is anyway, for the coach to create something that another any other coach wouldn't be able to do, and then for that coach to not be given credit in a sense. And then we see, though, the sense that, you know, how the idea that there's some sort of a distinction or decision between, well, how much of it is the athlete, how much of it is the coach, and the idea that there's a battle going on there. And I think that's unhealthy, you know, and I don't know, it's like saying how much of water is the hydrogen and how much of the water is the oxygen. Well, it's not two different atoms. It's a substance, right, that is a molecular substance that is a result of these things coming together. And that in character and entity, they're much different. The whole is greater than the part. But I think the norm as a consequence of these kinds of complexities, social complexities around the role of a coach has led to and continues to push people in coaching to try to, you know, demarcate their space of significance. Now, I think the reality is if you're really doing it well, you should be able to explain and show to the people you're working with the benefit that you're bringing. And that should be the incentive or motivation to work within that. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people doing coaching aren't doing it well. And that's because it's challenging to figure out. I don't think it's, if you're not good, quote unquote, good at coaching, I don't think that's an indication of a lack of ability or competence as a person. I think that's as much reflective of just the difficulty of the task itself. And the fact that the resources and the concepts of, well, what am I supposed to do that I'm a coach that get passed down are are also constraining in that regard. But a big piece of this becomes designing the workout and then motivating the athlete through the workout and then wanting to see that there's this cause and effect relationship between you bring this engagement, you design the intensity, 
you facilitate the athlete engaging in the intensity to a degree they would not maybe be able to do on their own, and then they achieve success. And so I think that right there pushes us to a much higher intensity. So ironically, the coaching, which I think should be working to help us find out where it's best for us to exercise, I think the bias of coaching is to push us to these higher states because the lactate threshold is not a state of training where if you're a coach observing the training that you're going to see something really being very like effective because if your perspective is I'm looking to sh- to see that the athlete is exerting and that exertion is the point of stimulus well you when you're doing lactate threshold it doesn't look like much externally but we're not it's not a performance right we're not um, busking here when we're training, right? It's an internal engagement, right? And the performance is the competition. The competition is when you're going to see that exertion happen. And if you look at practice, development, training, growth, in so many areas, and so many contexts, it's about people feeling good. You know, I don't think that high-performing business environments are necessarily this sort of goalpost that we should be referencing, but there are environments that sometimes have a lot of resources in terms of money to invest. And it's interesting to look at the choices that they make. And you see a lot of traditional, you know, management style, efficiency concepts at play there. And then the environments that seem often to be the most productive and effective are the ones that focus on feeling good. They supply things for the employees. They create more flexible Work environments, they create thing that, things that engage with their needs, whether it's like entertainment, whether it's more flexible work schedules, um, whether it's researches, resources for personal, social, emotional health within the campus of that workplace. Now, one interpretation would be to say that, well, they're just trying to get people to spend more and more time there. I don't know. You'd have to go and listen. That could be true. But at the same time, you can't deny that you're seeing an effort to do things that increase people's sense of well-being, how good they're feeling. Is that a concept of raising that threshold? So why is it that in athletic performance, we think that locking down and eliminating things that feel good and pushing further and further into that sort of totalitarian state of self-discipline and that the coach then serves to be like the secret police to sort of push us and keep us in that state to the greatest extent possible. And then people praise, and, and while well, my coach really helped me, you know, do that, be in that place. And, you know, I've been in a position where I've, you know, had conversations with people where they've talked about that. And my thought process has been like, geez, you know, it's interesting that that was your takeaway from your experience of the time that we worked together on your athletics, because... That's not what I'm trying to engender in people's experience, but I think that that's an example of we are told to perceive this is the value of the coach, so we're going to look for that. And then that's how we can show we had a valuable coach, and then we think that's how we show the coach is valuable. And you know, I hear people say stuff like that again, and it sort of blows my mind that that was their experience, but we're selectively driven to perceive it in that way. So these are some of the factors that I think that we might ask or wonder, is this what is making it difficult, right, for us to find our way to that state, this belief in in intensity, and that there's 
maybe this sort of complex of incentives and expectation of experience around coaching, and then athletes' expectations of what they're taught to want from their coaches that drives us towards that higher level of intensity. Okay, having established that as a starting point, let's talk about what the lactate threshold really is. One of the things I see on YouTube is this idea of like, well, I'm going to explain such and such to you. You don't need to know the physiology behind it. And I think that's basically because people have this sense of it's the it's the I'm not a math person response of, oh, that's something that people can know, but there's no value to it. And I don't feel confident in that space or because there's no value to it. Inherently, I don't really feel motivated to try to engage with that. I think there is definitely a ton of value to understanding the physiology. I think the question is, what level of understanding do you need in order to see what's going on? So what I'm going to share here is, of course, not going to be the absolute highest level of nuance because I don't have that particular level of knowledge. But I think that it's a level at which we can see what's going on sufficiently that we can have a recognition. And then forward, right, you can build off of that concept. And as new understandings, you know, in research come out, you can add that and extend your concept and your understanding there. A lot of people still have a really messy conceptualization of what lactate is. I think what's more common is lactic acid. That's not a thing. Uh, your body isn't acidifying itself. I think one of the points that I've heard in the past is that if your body was really producing that kind of acid, it would be basically eating itself up from the inside out. Now, I don't know, maybe that was being overstated to sort of just try to work towards displacing people's fixation on that idea of lactic acid. But I think people have always had that understanding that asthma at a certain point as you start to, at the same proportion, increase exercise intensity, you get non-proportionate and increasingly large jumps in you know, resistance from your body, right? Because that's what that is. You could turn that off, those sensations with you know, anesthetic, basically, right? But you're getting that increased level of resistance. So if it's not lactic acid, right? If it's not this destructive thing, Okay, even though it seems to track with that, what is really going on? So as you're working harder, your body needs more energy, right? That's what happens with any system, right? If it produces more work, it needs more energy. That's how processes in the universe work. Okay, you can't do more work without having some sort of scale of energy. You could change the efficiency, but you certainly have a scaling relationship between energy and work. And when you're working in the easy state, if you go from slow walking to steady walking, that uses more energy. You don't perceive that because it might be subtle, right? Or the sort of endpoint is still maybe hours and hours and hours and hours away before you're going to have a point at which your body is going to react to it and say, wait a minute, we're starting to push into a state that we don't want to be in. So what is happening with this? Okay, so lactate is a form of energy. Now, you go from sugar, glucose, and through the process that is glycolysis, 
right? And that's would be an example of you don't maybe need to know that term, but you need to know what happens. There's a transformation of sugar into this stuff called pyruvate. And those pyruvate, they can basically go into the mitochondria. The mitochondria are in your cells and they create the energy that you need to perform work, right? So you're converting through these steps. You convert your energy into, right, an actionable resource. Pyruvate can also go into lactate, okay? And lactate can then go, when reach the mitochondria itself, and in the outer layer of the mitochondria, it can go through a transformation and then be accepted to the mitochondria and be used. And then through the mitochondria, which is itself something that you know relies on and engages with oxygen, the presence of oxygen, to do its process, to do its thing, it will create energy. The limiting factor in all of this is the number of mitochondria. So what can happen is when work demand goes up, you will have something called lactate shuttling. And we've mentioned this before, but when you're shuttling, think of a bus, right? Taking a shuttle from one spot to the next. Not all of the muscle fibers are engaged at all times in work, okay? It's more discriminatory in that process that the body is selectively identifying. We want to use these fibers or those fibers. One distinction is this idea of that there are muscle fibers for more endurance work, and then there are muscle fibers for more high-intensity work. And some people say they're slow twitch, fast twitch, but you know there aren't only just two columns of what muscle fibers are. It's more complex than that. But we don't need to break that down in order to see what we want to see. What we're seeing is that process of glucose to pyruvate to lactate, right, of a sort of, you could think of glucose as being kind of a concept of, it's like a fixed in place thing. And then you put it through a process into a shuttle thing, right? So that lactate, right, it gets on the shuttle and it is moving via your blood, and then it can circulate to and come to the areas where it could be needed. And you can then, in that space, use that, convert that into through those mitochondria. So the limiting factor, right, oxygen debt isn't a thing. We don't run out of oxygen. It's not disappearing. And that's the problem with VO2 max as a concept is it encourages us to think that way because it suggests that, well, our real ceiling is our oxygen uptake, and you know we need to raise that. But that's not what's happening. Uh, we also don't run out of energy. If we ran out of energy every time we did training or racing that was challenging enough, we'd be going to the hospital and we'd have to be put on IVs or life support. If you run out of energy, you die. So the limiting fact, and the body will shut you down, right? We've talked about that um, before on the pod, the body will shut you down before you get to that point. And that's Tim Noakes' uh, central governor model is sort of used to explain that, that the brain is self-regulating in response to the work demand and response to what its perception, however it's perceiving it, but its perception of what is or is not tolerable and manageable. So the limiting factor then is the ability to convert the energy resources into actionable, usable energy. And because we can measure the lactate in the blood, 
if you have one mitochondria and you have one lactate, and then that one mitochondria can process that one lactate, and then you produce another lactate, and then you process it. Now, this isn't actually the ratio of how this stuff works, but in concept, that's basically what's happening, is you demand work that glucose to pyruvate to lactate process responds, and it produces energy based on what the demand for work is. Then that energy has to be processed through the mitochondria. And there are other energy systems at play, and you can't train for specific energy systems because all of the energy systems are always sort of engaged to different degrees at different times. But the mitochondria, we can prove because of the lactate curve, that the mitochondria clearly have a significant impact on the amount of work we're able to do, and especially how hard or easy it feels to do that work. So the limiting factor that we are saying must be at play here, it must be the number of mitochondria. Because if it was a limitation in oxygen, then we would see a very different process with this stuff. Number one, we would see that VO2 max training or training to improve oxygen uptake would be super effective, and it's not. The evidence that supports it is not is not functioning in consensus. And, you know, in practical applied process, you don't get any real benefit, right? If you compare something, doing something to nothing, you're obviously always going to see a result or an impact from the something. But you're not, coaches are not usually saying, well, we're going to have you guys over here work out 12 hours a week, and you're going to do six hours of, you know, 70 to 90% of your lactate threshold. And then we're going to have you guys over here do these three by eight minute efforts once a week. And then what, like, that's not how coaches are comparing. Most coaches are picking a thing that they're working with a group and they're saying, everybody is doing this. And then the problem is how do they, how do you force them to overcome that adversity of that training to get, quote-unquote, the benefit. The limiting factor, though, to come back to that, it's the number of mitochondria. Because if you, say, go from a level of energy where you're demanding one lactate, well, now you're demanding two or three, but if your mitochondria can only process one lactate, well, now you're going to have two mitochondria floating around. And then if you up the ante again, now you're going to have three because the mitochondria's processing speed, you know, is finite. And so one of the adaptations is, is that as we're getting stronger at higher paces of work, higher power outputs of work, we're seeing that we're maintaining a steady level of lactate in the blood instead of getting to seven minute pace and then doubling the amount of lactate that we're measuring in the blood the accumulation of that lactate is not happening yet. Now we're getting to 630 pace, or you're going from 250 watts to 280 watts without is starting to accumulate. So what must be true? What must be true at that point is that the lactate can still be used proportionally. So because your pace went up, because your power went up, the energy demand went up, so your body produced more lactate. It's not showing up in your blood because your body is still able to consume it. It's able to match the rate of consumption is matching the rate of production. 
but you reach a point where you can ask your body to do more work and will then, okay, I'm going to produce more energy. But then your rate of production has exceeded the level of consumption. Okay, you now have a surplus of lactate. And so it's just there and your body produces energy in proportion to the work demanded and it consumes that energy or utilizes that energy in proportion to the capacity of its system to do that. And we're saying the mitochondria is where we can attribute that process to something in particular. Now, we should also acknowledge that our understandings about things change over time, and it is very likely that we will see over time that better understandings of what's going on in this process, okay, will emerge, right? And maybe that might displace this idea of glucose to pyruvate to lactate to the bloodstream to moving to the area where it needs to be used. Maybe that understanding will be improved upon, you know, so much that it won't even really look the same. And that's the history of the development of knowledge is people settle on understandings. Now, when people say, well, we don't really need to know that level of science or whatever to engage with this or apply it to your training, I don't think that's true. I think you need to understand mechanistically, conceptually, what is actually happening. But I think the purpose of it is, can we use the science to get to that understanding, right? Can we use it pedagogically? And there's other ways to achieve that pedagogically. And so what this ultimately means is that even if this lactate into the mitochondria thing gets expanded on or better understood, we're still able to recognize the relationship where we don't, whatever that system ultimately is as it becomes better and better understood, the reality is, is that acting beyond the capacity of that system to consume energy doesn't lead to increasingly enhanced adaptations. And it leads to diminishing return in terms of opportunity cost of training because you can't do as much work at that point. So you're not getting any additional stress on the mitochondria when you go harder and harder. And so when you understand that basically what you're doing is you're trying to put that mitochondria system on alert that, okay, we can't match the level of production, that that's going to create the mechanism of response, the adaptive response to increase the capacity for consumption, to basically, you know, create more mitochondria, right? You can then convert more available energy into actionable energy, and then you're going to be able to go faster for longer, right? And that's the goal with endurance sports is to perform more work with less effort for longer periods of time. So that means one way to think about this is to say that there's like a peak zone for this kind of stimulus. And then why working beyond that zone isn't helpful. So the VO2 max thing or these like progressively higher hypothetical imagined thresholds aren't really helpful because you're not getting additional stress. You know logically that you've taxed out this system of converting available energy into actionable energy, right? This intermediary between 
your signal for work and then the work you can actually produce, you know, as the thing that makes the connection between what you want to do and what you can do possible, that you have reached that limit of its capacity. You know, so you're putting that adaptive signal, that adaptive strain on it to say, this system can't provide for me in the environment that I'm trying to exist in. And that's where frequency of training is really important too. And working harder and harder, right? You can say, well, 30 minutes. And then you're going to do lactate threshold for 30 minutes. You're going to be like, okay, so what? And I think the coach is going to look at you and we come back to the coach's bias. is going to look at you and be like, well, you didn't do anything. Because based on their perspective of what it should look like when people perform work, it looks like you didn't do anything. And so then you're not going to drift into this state of like, well, in the 30 minutes, like, what can we do in 30 minutes? Let's go a little more. Let's go a little more. You have that capacity to do that. And that's why racing is so interesting, because you can extend and push beyond this sort of process or system, right? It makes sense from a survival perspective that the body should be able to have alternative mechanisms. If the body got to the limit of, you know, its, its lactate threshold, and then it just like died, like, well, that wouldn't be a very good survival mechanism. And we don't know what the history of the evolutionary biology is because these things are all dead. But, you know, you wonder, right? Was there ever a instance of that that being a thing or an issue? And certainly mitochondrial, you know, diseases are not good, right? Um, I don't pretend to know anything in particular about that. I'm just sort of saying from a you know, logical, deductive standpoint, right? We would have to imagine that not being able to produce, you know, mitochondria sufficiently would be a huge problem, right? So that's kind of the opposite end of that implication of like, we can know how important mitochondria are if we know what happens if there's an issue with mitochondrial biogenesis in terms of a medical or a health issue. So what this means is when you're doing a lactate evaluation, you're trying to find again at what intensity of work is that lactate threshold being reached. But what you're trying to find is you're using a progression of work intensity to find the lactate threshold. You're not trying to figure out the watts or the pace per se. It's about the lactate threshold. And you're trying to figure out where that occurs and that as your fitness and freshness are fluctuating from one day to the next, just like it would in a race, performances can fluctuate from one day to the next. You have good days and bad days in terms of your energy and what you can do. That lactate threshold is going to go up and up and down, not in terms of the capacity of the mitochondria, but in what you can do. And that's those external fatigues. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say, a good version of this, and I can't remember it well enough to paraphrase it off the top of my head, so I'm going to try to say it in a different way, which I hope is also effective in terms of making sense. But it's fatigue coming from places outside of engaging that system. So when you work really hard or do something really strenuous where you're really engaging the muscles to a significant degree, well, guess what's happening, right? You're going to create all of this fatigue, and that's what's going to drag it down. Whereas when you just focus on doing lactate threshold training or training up to that intensity, but not just going over it all the time, well, you can do a ton of lactate threshold, okay? And I think this is why for Arthur Lydiard it was so important to talk about 
how do you find that limit and stay within that? And then you look at that, you know, how to skate a 10K and a 5K article by Vanderpoel talks about the limit, right? And you can think about, well, what does that mean, right? Is this what he's also referring to? Podcast episode we want to do in the future as an aside is look at, well, what are all the different examples of training systems, individuals, training cultures that seem to have operated around this principle, even if, and maybe especially if, they didn't use this contemporary concept of lactate, lactate shuttling, and the implication of what that means in terms of mitochondrial capacity. Because I think that you can arrive at this understanding in different ways. And that's a part of identifying the lactate threshold, is number one, you're identifying it through this process, but you're also identifying it because it's about perception. You can perceive it if you know what to look for. So the key conclusions, though, that we can reach from this concept of what the lactate threshold is, is that there's no additional benefit in terms of increasing your ability to go faster for longer. The key piece here is this, using this highly efficient state of being within the efficiency point of I can consume as much energy as I produce and utilize the energy that I produce. There's no benefit to developing that from going beyond that and working harder. It's about how much time, the the sort of way you ratchet up the benefit is to spend more and more time in that state. And what you'll find if you identify your lactate threshold is that state really isn't that difficult. And then when you look at how people train, it's a paradigm shift. Of course, the fact that you can continue to produce work and beyond that lactate threshold shows us that at the same time, the body has other mechanisms of performing work and you know, then by implication using energy to produce that work. But this is not an aerobic, anaerobic distinction. And you know, I thought in those terms for the longest time, and I, that's still extremely common, I think partly because it's something that's, you know, again, pedagogically valuable of making a distinction. And you could still say if you wanted, right, we could still use those terms basically to say that aerobic, we're going to say that means work done, you know, below, right, that lactate threshold and up to it. And then you see work done over that. We could say, well, that's anaerobic. We have to change what those terms mean, right, and say that that it refers to those distinctions in state. And that would then change really the intended meaning of those words because we don't actually switch physically from a, oh, we have oxygen to now, like we're in oxygen debt, so now we use this different system because all these energy systems are working at the same time. So what we have here is a problem then of interpretation. I've heard people say that recovery is the entirety of the, say, green zone in the polarized training. And the green zone in the polarized training goes basically up to and ends at the point of hitting lactate threshold. And I've heard the green zone be described as, um, well, that's the whole thing, that's the recovery zone. And so the polarized stuff is, I think, more of a sort of like um, physiological ethnography, if you will, this sort of like interesting intersection between like a cultural ethnographic approach to the study of physiology where... Right, Steven Seiler is looking at what people are doing and then he's modeling it. And then people are saying, oh, well, this is polarized training. Well, that's just not a model of training. I mean, at the end of the day, 
which is ironic because it is a model of training. It models the training that people do and how they seem to distribute that. But people aren't reaching conclusions about how to train. They're saying, oh, so really what I do is when I smash it, I only smash it, you know, two out of every eight times. I am going ballistic 20% of the time and the rest of the time I'm going incredibly easy. And the idea is, well, that's why it's polarized. But that's not the right interpretation of what people are doing. It's that a huge portion of your training, if it's going to be effective, is working close and up to the lactate threshold for huge amounts of time. And then you have stuff where you're just chilling out. And then you might have a little bit of stuff where you might be going you know, up to a higher level of work. And the reason why you have that in-between zone where people don't spend a lot of time is because if you're going to get really good at this stuff, what eventually you recognize is working 5% over lactate threshold just like has limited value because it's, you know, if you're going from, if your lactate threshold is 250 watts, you're like, well, I'm going to work out at 290 watts. Well, you're going to get more fatigue but you're just going to limit, you're not going to get any more lactate threshold benefits. You're just going to get less lactate threshold benefit. And, you know, if you haven't done any sort of like strength or speed development, so to speak, which are, again, oversimplifying what's really going on there, but if you haven't done any of those kinds of concepts, then maybe you start there, right? And for your brain and the central governor and for your skill, you develop that. But what you're really trying to get to is where you're accessing a much higher level of work higher level of pace, higher level of intensity. Like that's where you get those sort of strength or those, you know, speed benefits, right? You're trying to improve your coordination. You might start a little bit over lactate threshold, but ultimately you're trying to build into that, that stuff. If you think about as sport, as choreography, right? You're trying to get that choreography to be as highly skilled as possible. And then that's where you use really short periods of work. So in running, there's a big difference between doing repeat 200s and repeat 400s. With a repeat 200, depending on your tempo, you might need to do 150 or 100 meters, of course, because it's really about what it means in terms of the time of the exertion. But in a repeat 200 situation, you might be able to develop an access of significant rate of movement, right, with all the dynamics of choreography involved in that, and that then you're going to reach a point where if you continue to go, you're going to extend into sort of, okay, I'm now not in control and I'm just struggling. Well, that's not productive. So you want to stay out of that state, you know, and that's how you manipulate that, um, that process. But you're not getting these, 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 you know, a lot of those energy, let's think about it this way. A lot of that sort of ambiguous system is, well, that's what happens in racing, right? Is people take each other, essentially, try and take each other out of their lactate thresholds. I mean, you could argue that one simplified concept of racing is to be like, I want to see if I can get you out of your lactate threshold and I can stay in mine. Or if we both have to go out of it, I want to let's find out who is going to break down and fatigue faster. Okay. And the higher percentage that you work at of that, you know, the more likely you're going to break down more quickly. So you do, I think racing is really, you spend a lot of time in that, you know, that intermediate, that yellow zone. But the polarized stuff is being totally misinterpreted, I think. And when you, you know, don't understand um, what you're trying to detect when you're doing your training, none of these things are helpful. And that's how when people interpret models like polarized in the way that they do, 
um, and they try to turn it into this like training mecca of, you know, solution, you see something that's, you know, not effective. And then what happens is you're comparing in studies, you're comparing a bunch of different things, all of which aren't really very effective. And that's where these sort of comparative studies to see what's effective in training to me is, honestly, I find it kind of bizarre because I think that's something that is way more potent if it's studied historically and that you should be using the sort of the scientific method of experimentation because history is, you know, an application of the scientific method too, right? You're collecting evidence and using it to reach conclusions and trying to determine whether or not your initial hypothesis was correct. But you can then use the physiological science in combination with that historical perspective or that contemporary cultural anthropological perspective. So how have people arrived at this understanding without relying on these scientific, I guess, perspectives or simplifications? I don't mean simplification in a condescending way. I just mean the reality is whatever our current understanding is on this stuff, it's definitely simple because the level of stuff that's going on that we're just not able to really observe or recognize is obviously pretty significant. And, you know, that's where it's unfortunate that we won't be around in a thousand years, you know, but I'm sure people will be listening to this podcast in a thousand years, but we won't be around in a thousand years to see what these understandings have developed into. So we're kind of, we're limited by where we are. But I think if we understand that, right, we can understand that, well, whatever conclusions are reached from this, that they're fractional relative to the totality of what must probably be probably be going on. So we mentioned Arthur Lydiard, and we've been mentioning him a lot, and I think he's a really important historical reference point because, and this is true of the study of history, is, you know, we are directed in what we study by what's available. And when people make a significant effort in their lifetime to communicate and leave record of their experience, that becomes an important window of things to look at. And that's what's sort of, I think, unfortunate about people looking at ways to dismiss Arthur Lydiard because, you know, they feel that maybe on some unconscious level, his significance or his ideas sort of diminish whatever the efforts are of people after him. But the real skill of coaching is getting people to their own understanding. It's the pedagogical skill of it. It's not necessarily finding the original thing. I think, you know, that's the key. And I think probably the reason why Lydiard wanted to communicate this stuff as much as he did is because, and he talks about it taking a decade basically to get to the point where they really felt that they understood how this stuff was working, right? And, you know, maybe he's motivated to try to help people not spend 10 years. I mean, 10 years could totally make or break people's opportunity to engage with this stuff in a rewarding way. And I think that's, you know, a worthwhile goal. And I think that's more reflective of his character uh, as an individual based on what, you know, it appears to have been. So historically, right, again, we want to remember that the physiology is researching against practices that people do. So that means practices are established first by other means for other reasons. Okay, having put that out there, right, let's look at some excerpts um, from Lydiard's writing um, and talk about what we can kind of maybe interpret from that. So here's a quote. Fundamentally, my training system is based on a balanced combination of aerobic and anaerobic running. 
Aerobic running means running within your capacity to use oxygen. We'll call the limit the maximum steady state, the level at which you're working to the limit of your ability to breathe in, transport, and use oxygen. So I think one of the things that we could look at there is we can say, okay, so what is the antiquated thing? Well, the antiquated thing would be applying the concept of oxygen debt and this aerobic versus anaerobic and that we're limited by the body's ability to use oxygen. Okay, but that's not a reflection of the quality of you know what is being discussed here because what's being discussed here is the division between those two states. The limitation is really the limitation of the exercise science, the physiology, right, that is being used to try to like explain what's going on. And when you look at that, if you're like think that you've evolved in your understanding of the science and the physiology beyond this point, it's easy to look at this and be like, oh, well, this is just total garbage because it's not about your ability to breathe in and transport and use oxygen. That's not the important thing to focus on, right? So one of the tasks here is how do we interpret this as a primary document? And what we need to recognize here is he's saying, working to the limit of your ability. And that this feeling of, right, it says running within your capacity, okay? And that you're seeing a combination of working within that and then, you know, working to a higher state over that. And when they work to a higher state over that, they went well over that, right? They're not just like, oh, let's go, you know, 10 or 15 seconds a mile over that. It's very important you're staying under that state. And so then the oxygen thing, part of the reason why that oxygen debt model is so appealing to people logically is because it's really descriptive as much of what we're feeling as anything else. And so I think that interpretive bias in terms of, you know, a lot of original exercise physiology ideas and still today, right, you know, just like the perspective of pain is productive, well, then that bias causes us to, to, you know, construct, you know, understandings where it shows that, yep, engaging with pain, engaging with this high level of resistance, that's really productive for us as athletes. Well, here, right, it feels like you're running out of oxygen, okay? Um, and you're, you cross like that ventilatory threshold, your breathing rate will start to change and your breathing gets more and more ragged. I don't know enough about it, but, you know, I wonder how much of that is this idea of we need to breathe in more oxygen versus how much of that is we're producing so much energy that we need to expel, you know, you know all that carbon dioxide, right? Are we, is it more about expelling gases through ventilation, right? Is that as much of what that is? I mean, I think with asthma, and I'm speculating here, I don't have asthma, but you know, my fam- a lot of people in my family have asthma, and I think one of the things they talk about is not being able to get a breath out, right? Not being able to push the air out all the way, and you know, I'll talk to people about that because I'm just sort of like thinking about that off the top of my head right now. But if that was true, right? Let's think about what that what could that mean, right? Would that maybe be reflective of the fact that respiratory difficulty, you know, can be as much about expelling gases as it is about, you know, taking in a full breath, right? That there's a relationship that those are sort of not two distinct things, but they're, you know, very much engaged with each other. Here's another quote. An argument often used by LSD, long slow distance, runners to support their style of training. I agree that they will gain from their system of long slow runs lasting several hours, but they will not guess the get the best results. The aerobic pressure must be kept up to near the maximum steady state, 
and with increasing fitness, that level rises, so the exercise must increase in pressure with it. A level of aerobic effort between 70 and 100% in training is most effective for the time spent running, and the LSD system does not reach that. So first of all, the people saying Lydiard long, slow distance, to Lydiard, that's like, what the hell are you talking about? That's not what we're doing. You know, to him, that was a totally different group. But people associate this stuff, and it's the, it's the game of telephone within sports culture and how we talk about this stuff. They say, well, it's doing a lot of distance slowly, and it is slower than people who constantly, I mean, there are people who run 30 to 40 miles a week, and they just work out over their lactate threshold, and they just happily sit in that yellow zone, right? Because there's people who think anything below lactate threshold, they've decided, well, that's recovery, because it's not enough of a strain. And then they look at Lydia, and they project their perspective of what it means to run a mile in training in a general sense, onto that volume of work. And they, that's just insane. They were, you know, destroying themselves. You know, and some people might say, well, the Lydiard, you know, that's a great example of that path of discipline model. But I think when you pay attention, and if you can, for people listening, I really will say that you have to do the lactate test if you want to really get what that feels like, because it's eye-opening, and it's a paradigm shift, and I've said that before, but it bears repeating again and again because once you feel that state, you recognize, okay, this is clearly a boundary line, number one. And number two, you're like, I understand how people can run or ride like this so much. And so when Lydiard says, first of all, 70 to 100%, he's not even saying to work at that full state all of the time. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, all, as much as as low as 70% of that. And again, when you know how the lactate threshold actually feels, and then when you apply that understanding, you start to realize how controlled right that really is and why it's possible to do so much work. In that quote, in that excerpt, he says that, you know, as you are increasing your fitness, the level rises. So that's that lactate threshold thing progressing. And the exercise must increase in pressure with it. That doesn't mean that now you need to start working out over that lactate threshold. It means that, you know, you're going to have to, if you're grading that off of pace, you know, you would have to progress your pace to keep it within that 70 to 100% range. And that's what we're talking about there. Now, I've listened to an episode of the On Coaching podcast and I know I've been referencing that a lot, but I'm referencing it because I really enjoy the podcast, and I think they say and talk about this stuff in general in really interesting and engaged and informed ways. But and I find all that stuff, you know, certainly to be thought provoking. But I'm really interested too in kind of how they're engaging with this Arthur Lydiard stuff because uh, from a historical perspective, I feel like some of the kinds of conclusions that they're reaching maybe could be developed a little bit more or could be reflected on a little bit more. So there's one episode um, where, if I'm remembering correctly, um, they're talking about the system um, and they talk about the paces that this training is being done at. And to be fair, you know, I don't have access to these resources or these references that they're referring to in terms of the original Lydiard schedule, but I have uh, tried to you know, prompt some questioning about, you know, how accurate are these sort of pace models really being? And that, you know, a lot of times Lydia is talking about a 
one quarter, three quarter, four fifths, five fifths kind of concept. And is that like, I mean, that's different than prescribing pace, you know, and is that because it's about trying to cue people to be at the right perception of that lactate threshold? Um, But there's a lot of questioning about, you know, the validity or the utility of 100 miles a week. But I think the 100 miles a week is just symptomatic of at the paces that people are running, how many miles does that equal? And I think for runners, they're oftentimes really protective of, you know, well, we want to continue to quantify everything in terms of the number of miles because that's just like such a, it's a fun LARPing part of the culture in a sense. Um, But I think what the literary people did really um, is try to find the opportunity cost, right? What's the most um, response they could get for training hours against the issue of being able to keep up with their training so that they could get the benefit. And I think that what they uh, represent on that podcast episode is that basically all of this training was being done at like five-minute pace or under five-minute pace. And I think essentially what's important is I think kind of the implication was that you know, the training was just really hard. And the argument is that we wouldn't want to train like that today because this was, you know, in our podcast language, like this is a path of discipline concept. But I don't, I don't think that's true. I think that's a feel-good concept. Um, and when we use that historical perspective, I think what we have to say is, you know, that that conclusion that they were just training so hard all the time and they would have just been exhausted, I think that falls into that sort of like, glorification, going to a dark place, heroism interpretation of things. And I just think this is wrong. You know, when Lydiard says, you know, 70 to 100%, it's 70 to 100% of the lactate threshold. And I also don't think that Steve Magnus and John Marcus understand where the lactate threshold is. Um, And I say that respectfully because maybe they understand, maybe they just think that that's not the effective threshold um, and that I mean, that seems to be the case because uh, John Marcus has said that, um, you know, in polarized training, you know, the end of the green zone, that's that all of everything in the green zone is active recovery. And that's hysterical when you start to realize that, well, but so for Lydiard, those hundred miles a week, in addition to the other 50 to 70 miles a week of more easy running, easier paced running, a hundred of those miles were done between 70 to 100 percent of the top end of that green zone that John Marcus is interpreting as active recovery. And so you see how, right, you know, the, the discussion around this stuff is is very complex. And I think Steve Magnus and John Marcus are very, you know, bright people and are very competent in their understandings. And that's why I think it's interesting to refer to that instance of interpretation because it shows how it's not just like, oh, only the really simple people are grappling with how do we interpret this concept, where do we see it at play, that it's more of a, a universal or, or ubiquitous issue of interpretation. Another Lydiard quote, One of the greatest difficulties I have had in persuading coaches and athletes to accept my system is that the majority have been chained to the principles of interval training, which emphasizes aerobic intervals, repetition work as the most important phase of a training program. As far as I'm concerned, it is the least important. And that's really significant because I think, first of all, right, it's we need to get away from that kind of stuff. 
it's too intense. When you break stuff up and you take breaks, that allows you to access a higher level of intensity. And now that can be good if you're doing it the right way, but if you're using it to keep your training above the lactate threshold, what's the point? And so by running continuously and running a lot, you know, I think if you're running over an hour, you know, I think at that point, right, it's really, really unlikely that you're going to be able to get out there and work over the lactate threshold without, you know, being in a, a training effort. And I've explained that in different ways or thought about that in different ways in the past. But I think in this concept, right, we can also think about it using the lactate threshold way. FTP, for example, is something that identifies this supposed anaerobic capacity. And it's much closer to ventilatory threshold too, or that point of respiratory compensation where you go from, you know, steady, intense breathing to ragged, you know, you know, out of control breathing. Um, and that's kind of where I think that tends to fall is it's right below that point. And that's the brink of where if you go any harder, it's just going to become exhaustive on a very, very condensed time scale. And, you know, in my personal experience, I, I do feel that there is a, you know, sense of that kind of like stability limit point up there um, because I can race well over my ventilatory threshold one and ventilatory threshold two for endurance length distances, you know, an hour or even a half marathon some, sometimes. You know, I can do, you know, my max heart rate is 213 and, you know, I think I can do about 190, 191 I've done for a half marathon, you know, that doesn't mean that the half marathon was any good, but just in terms of, you know, how high up that scale you can really get, you know, and my, you know, I'd say when I'm moving at lactate threshold, my heart rate is way lower than that. But a lot of people might say that half marathon pace is lactate threshold. Well, that's not a correct identification. The level of strain is beyond. And just because you could pick a tempo and you could be at that tempo and you can have a steady production of lactate, like maybe you're steadily at 4.5 the whole time you're doing that half marathon, or maybe it's 5, or maybe it's 3.3. That doesn't mean that that's lactate threshold, okay? Because you've gone to that point of accumulation, right? You've already started accumulating to get to that point. And, but you can see where if you don't have, or maybe we should say it differently, depending on what you think the right interpretation is of using lactate as an organizing concept, right, it's not going to somehow point you to the optimal direction. So then if you are using that concept and you're going out and you're doing training at half marathon pace as a threshold pace or whatever, then like you're not necessarily going to see this huge benefit. And so then you start creating all this anecdotal evidence that it's like, oh yeah, you know, this lactate threshold stuff, just a, a bunch of snake oil, but it's in the interpretation of it. You can't actually determine if it is or isn't effective until you apply it in the correct way. There's also this concern about, well, what about the anaerobic capacity? What about the anaerobic capacity for exercise? But when you recognize that the anaerobic aerobic distinctions are just not really meaningful because you aren't, you know, track changing from one energy system to another, you recognize that that kind of focus or fixation isn't really helpful. And that also helps us to see this stuff differently. So again, this idea of like, we don't really need to understand the science. We're just here to get faster. 
um, isn't really true. Just like to say that, well, we don't need to understand, you know, the history of this stuff. We're just here to get faster. Well, if you're here to get faster, you need to understand what's going on. And we know that's true because people who don't figure this stuff out or find their way to it, and there's different avenues and there's different pedagogical systems to find your way to it, that's where the nuance lies. Um, you know, not in this idea, well, there's different ways to train. There are different ways to train, okay? Um, you know, if you want to train for running uh, by jumping out of a second-story window every morning into a snowbank, you, you can do that, okay? And that would, you could define that as a form of training, and you found a different way of training. It doesn't mean, you know, that there's this false equivalency, you know, is not helpful. So I think Seiler has done some stuff where he's shown that Nordic skiers have um, a really low level of millimole at lactate threshold, that they might, you know, their lactate threshold steady state might be 0.6 millimole, and then they might start accumulating when they jump from that to, you know, 0.8 or, or you know, 1.5 to 1.6 or so. And, you know, oftentimes one of the difficult things is that then that leads to this idea of, well, they have really low anaerobic capacity. And if you ask them to work out at, you know, four millimole, that's going to be really hard. But I think what we should recognize is that asking anybody to work out four millimole is really hard. And there's the cultural bias of like, you know, we need to project heroism and that people will, you know, claim, you know, whatever. Okay, but I don't think this idea that, well, if your millimole steady state is lower, that, you know, your ceiling of the lactate you can produce is lower. I don't think that that's useful or meaningful. I just basically think that if you demand more work, your body will produce more lactate. And then depending on, you know, how your body responds to demands for work, depends on maybe what the ultimate lactate production is. But I don't even necessarily think that, well, okay, so does that mean we need to replace VO2 max with, you know, max lactate production? I, I don't really, I don't think that that's where we're going. You know, I don't think it's about knowing, you know, what the ceiling is in terms of, you know, energy or oxygen and then trying to lever that. I think it's just, hey, what works is to train, you know, up to, to maximize time spent at this level of what we're calling a mitochondrial strain. And like, if that's where we get better, we work at that. We don't then try to go find, well, what is the theoretical thing that might cap what this could ultimately get to? And can we blow the cap off of that? You won't know that until you max out. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence for people. I mean, one of the later stipulations is that it seems that you can kind of develop this kind of indefinitely, you know, and who knows what would have happened if those, that group of athletes was, existed today in today's sports culture where it's more normalized and more possible to do this stuff for, you know, to be at a high level from when you're 20 to when you're 38 to 45 or whatever, if you so choose, if you're so motivated and inclined. So in coming back to that idea, though, of like, well, the anaerobic system and, you know, I've seen a conclusion that said that a regressed lactate model is indicative of a greater anaerobic capacity. And I don't, think that that really matters, right? I think what ultimately matters is your level of performance. And I think that you want to be able to produce work with less energy. That's the real goal. And as long as that's happening, you know, maybe you can say it doesn't maybe matter exactly what the lactate threshold looks like, because it's not, you're not training to change your lactate threshold per se, but in the grand scheme, it would make sense that, you know, work rates, I mean, how do you go from being a kid who can't run a mile in five minutes 
to being an adult who can run a marathon at 458 pace. Okay, I don't think that's because of your anaerobic capacity. Especially because anaerobic capacity is sort of like a, a bit of a red herring. You know, my brother has a lactate steady state um, where he produces about 0.8. And, you know, we did a test where, you know, he was at 0.8 very consistently um, all the way up to 320 watts. And then it just started to go up at a constant rate um, up to 400 or 420. And it didn't transition to then this increasing exponential scale. It just was very steady. And, you know, he's also done, um, you know, ride in the past where he's, done 435 watts for like 50 minutes and so you know and i would say around that time his lactate threshold was probably around 320 watts so he has this lactate threshold of you know 0.8 millimoles and then he can go all the way up to this you know hypothetical ftp threshold where he's four to maybe 4.5 or 4.7 millimoles so this idea that, oh, well, if your millimoles are lower, then you're going to be, you know, totally whatever. And I think that this also, though, points to that, um, you know, the fact that his, you know, quote unquote FTP is like 100 to 115 watts over his actual lactate threshold. So depending on, you know, what you're training and doing, and, and this is not an athlete who uses these VO2 max, these high intensity you know, models of exertion. It's not, that's not how he's getting there, right? He's doing the kinds of things that we're talking about and emphasizing on this podcast. And those are the experiences that are informative to that. And what these would look like for different, for different people would be different. But I think that a part of the conclusion though, is that it's changeable and it's responsive to training. And there, and I think we see the problem with people saying, well, You've got these two thresholds. You've got, you know, aerobic threshold, and that's two millimoles. And then you've got FTP or anaerobic threshold, and that's four millimoles. And we want to train at four millimoles because that's the maximum steady state. And it's a misinterpretation, right? You're at the point where you're accumulating this lactate and you're not really like producing, right, the energy out of that that you could earlier. Okay, and you want to extend that. You think about that transformation from a five-minute miler to a five-minute paced marathon runner. You know, you're not doing that because oh, now I'm marathoning at ten millimoles the whole time. But maybe that when they were running a five-minute mile, they were doing that. Okay. So when we think about what we're trying to change or transform over time, you know, that's a really important distinction to try to understand. Here's another quote. Athletes running over measured courses fairly regularly are inclined to pressure themselves into becoming competitive about it. They want to cover the course faster each time or can be tempted into trying to do so. If they just go out and run for, say, an hour and a half with the pressure off, we seem to get better results. Keep this firmly in mind. How do we identify our lactate threshold? How can we test to find where this state is, where the state exists? To do this, you need a lactate meter. You can get them from Nova Biomedical. I haven't found another supplier. Um, I guess demand just really isn't high enough to create a lot of competition in that space. You can get them um, for plus or minus $300. 
Um, which if you don't want to buy them because you think that's expensive, that's fine, right? We're not on the podcast to promote this product. They're not paying us money. As is, I'm telling you honestly, I haven't found a different alternative. If, if you have one, um, send us a message and let us know so we can check that out. But And then you get the test strips. And the way the test, you can do the test in different ways. Um, one method would be to maybe more, you know, pick a really easy effort for 10 minutes and, you know, sort of get warmed up and then to every three minutes increase the intensity and at the end of each three minute interval um, to take a sample and to do this you would use a lancet um, like people might use for blood sugar testing to prick your fingertip Um, the earlobe is probably a better place to do that it's easier to do this if you have a buddy um, or somebody you know who's willing to be the test taker um, in terms of like taking the data and writing it down, um, on a Wahoo kicker, you can just create a custom workout and you can just scale it in erg mode by 20 Watts every three minutes. And then, you know, you have the data and you graph it. And what you'll see is you'll go along and it will be, you know, baseline, it will be steady, steady. And then there'll be a step where it goes up and the step after that, it goes up even more. And the lactate threshold is the maximum power or the maximum run pace that you could sustain before it started to accumulate. If you are doing it by yourself, that would be hard. You just prick a finger, uh, you wipe the first drop of blood, and then the second one, um, you put the test strip in the meter, you put the end of the strip to the blood, it takes the sample, and then the lactate meter takes 13 seconds, and then we'll tell you the reading, um, and then you write that down. Another testing protocol that people can use is the protocol that I believe is what Indigo San Milan uses with Tadej Pogacar and other athletes that he works with. And what he does is he scales the horizontal axis, the x-axis, not by watt steps, but by power to weight ratio steps. So that could be a quarter of a watt per kilogram or half a watt per kilogram what that does is it essentially is accounting for variations in weight. You know, sometimes as athletes, we will be stronger or leaner depending on what we're doing in our training or where we are just with our relationship with the sport at any given time. And that allows for better and more accurate comparison in terms of what we are trying to do um, with our testing. And the other aspect of that is to... Uh, make the steps a little bit longer. So the idea here is that a three-minute step might not be enough of a duration to really settle into that new level of exertion, and there could be like a delayed response. You'll still feel the progression of effort, but it could be that you might perhaps be inflating your lactate steady state uh, with the shorter steps. So this would be for steps that you know would be really easy, the steps would maybe be five minutes, And then when you get to a tempo that's maybe sort of more of your default um, self-selected training pace, you would then go uh, 10 minutes at each quarter of a kilogram or half a kilogram step. And then the same token, you could take the um, data. You could also try um, finger pricking every five minutes. So halfway through the 10-minute steps as another way to see uh, if you know, the lactate is accumulating as you go across that step. And then you would graph that data and that would allow you to identify that 
deflection point. You could also test multiple times um, for redundancy. And then as you go through training, you probably want to periodically be testing anyway, maybe a month and a half or eight weeks or so. In order to do the test, what really helps is, and you want to then in training, apply that by trying to work out as much as possible. And then when we say as much as possible, that doesn't mean pushing yourself into the death zone in order to do literally as much as possible. As much as possible is a really meaningful phrase. It it's carries a lot of weight. It's what is possible, and that means in terms of what you can reasonably sustain without becoming miserable in your relationship with athletics. That's what means as much as possible. And then you want to engage with that and apply that, okay, in training. So then this logically leads to the concept of, well, what does that look like in application? And that's where we're going to go in our next episode, looking into this lactate threshold stuff. And hopefully what we're seeing is that when we're talking about lactate threshold, we're not talking about some really esoteric, abstract, confusing principle um, of sports physiology that only the you know, USATF level whatever or, you know, coaches can understand, but that it's an attempt to articulate and better validate the system that's going on beyond behind the principle that a lot of different sports cultures have identified and been really successful with, and that we've used Arthur Lydiard as an example because in the historical record, it's a resource that's really available. In the future, we'd like to do some episodes where we try to pull together all of the different instances historically of applying systems that we can try to prove or interpret as being the correct, quote-unquote, correct application of this idea of what is the limit, right, to how I want to be training and preparing. So that's something that I hope people will find helpful in the future. But in the immediate future, we're going to come back with another episode where we talk about, well, once you've identified this, how do you apply it? In practice. Thanks for checking out today's episode of Black Cats Run. I hope you've been enjoying our extended discussion and exploration into the concept of lactate threshold. I hope that your paradigm is starting to shift if it hasn't done so already. If you've enjoyed this episode and other episodes of the podcast, you can reach out to us. Check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We have graphs, visuals, helping to better demonstrate these kinds of ideas. We're also available for consultation about people's engagement with their own training. You can send us a message and let us know if you're interested in that as well.